the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffled Podcast, Episode 155. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Hello, Unruffled listeners. We are popping in at the top of the show to share with you several ways that you can help support the podcast. First, you can become a patron of the show by donating to our Patreon fundraising campaign. Please consider supporting our consistent effort in bringing you weekly content on creativity and recovery, all for less than the price of a latte. For just a dollar an episode, you will receive early access to each week's show as our way of saying thank you. If every listener did this, we would be over the moon. The link to our Patreon campaign is www.patreon.com backslash the unruffled podcast and that's not it you can share our show on social media or with your friends and you can subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on itunes all of this helps our little show immensely and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts now on to the show hey sandra good morning this is an exciting show today this is an exciting show. I'm so I'm so excited to share this. So, um, little background: if you didn't hear me talk about it all over social media leading up to the event um, on February 26th, I got to facilitate Holly Whitaker's um, book event for her book "Quit Like a Woman" at book people in Austin, Texas. It's our local, big, supportive uh, bookstore here in Austin. And um, it was really thrilling. I was honored beyond belief that she and her people um, asked me to do it. And um, it was so, it was, we were both nervous, <laughs> but it was so fun. Um, if you don't know who Holly Whitaker is, what? What? Yeah, where you been? What are you doing? <laughs> um, Holly, uh, Holly is a friend of the show. Um, I, I discovered Holly when she started her podcast with Laura McCowan called Home um, years ago. And they made a Facebook group um, to accompany that podcast. And that is where Tammy and I met. And yes. I met so many women that I consider my dear, dear friends today. And I mentioned that this in the book event. You'll hear me um, mention that. But um, Holly started a company called Hip Sobriety. It was, a, I think, a blog at first. And then yes. she started a... Uh, basically a, a sobriety school kind of like training. This is how I got sober. Um, a pro- program basically. And um, started off very small and then it grew and grew and uh, it morphed into a big company now called the temper. And she still runs the sobriety school and she has a whole media outlet as well called the temp i'm sorry the tempest okay. is her company and yeah right the tempest is her company the temper is the social or the, is the media outlet and um she is now the ceo of that and she is also um you know, now a full-fledged writer, even though she was before, um, with her book. And she did a powerhouse tour. And um, I was just so, felt so lucky that I got to be a part of it. Oh, I was so happy that they asked you, Sandra, and that you got to do that. I mean, that's in your wheelhouse here, obviously. I mean, we've been practicing uh, doing a podcast for three years, right? And you've been doing right. improv 
and you go to all the book events at Book People. I've been to. You're a writer. Yeah, I've been to about 50 book signings at yeah. Book People, and so you were that training. Really, that was really fun to get to share that. It's like they had no idea either, and but you were the perfect person. You asked the right perfect woman. To yeah. You were born for this, right? Isn't that what God says? I think that's what she says. Uh, yeah, Holly has been such a, uh, you know, the glue for a lot of uh, relationships and people in sobriety. And when she started her school, and I, I think this is the right number, she had 13 students mm, her very right. first school. And that, look at look at her now, you know, five mm-hmm. years later, or less than five years later, here she is. And she's really driven and talented and kind. And um, wow, I just, I can't wait for our listeners to hear this conversation. I'm so happy you got to do this, Sandra. Yes, me too. And thank you to Book People um, for recording it um, for us. We, I was having a little bit of anxiety over trying to get the thing recorded um, because, you know, I'm just... <laughs> I'm just not very technical. And um, that was causing a little bit of stress. Um, And then book people offered to just record it for me. And that was wonderful. Um, And they're putting it actually putting the interview up on their podcast as well. So it's very fun. Awesome. Well, um, if people want to listen or learn a little bit more about Holly, if you're new to Holly Whitaker and this is the first time you're hearing about her, she was on episode 81 of this podcast. So if you want to go back and, and do a little listening and if you want to check out her website, it's um, jointempest.com or you can check out thetemper.com. And you can also find her on Instagram just at Holly, which she also has a bunch of pearls of nuggets. Pearls of nuggets? What? Same. Pearls, wisdom, nuggets, wisdom. wisdom. I don't yeah. know. It's early. <laughs> She's got it all. You can find her there or at the temper on Instagram as well. All right. Well, you guys, I hope you enjoy this interview. Thank you all so much for coming out to Book People tonight. We really appreciate you coming out to support our store. Um, And I also want to give a special thanks to the Sands Bar, who um, uh, Chris Marshall is the founder over there. They have provided some fantastic libations for y'all to enjoy before and during the event. So thank you very much. We don't always get to have refreshments at our events, so this is a special treat. Um, If you have not been to one of our events before, welcome. Uh, The way these things go down is we will have a speaking portion of the event. There will be an opportunity for you to ask questions. Uh, During tonight's um, presentation is actually going to be recorded for the Unruffled podcast. So the guests may repeat your questions, and that would be why. And also, please remember to silence your cell phones. You don't want to be that person whose phone goes off in the middle of the event. If you want to keep your phone on and take pictures and share them on social media, everybody involved would probably greatly appreciate that. Uh, Just remember to turn off your cell phone. So tonight, we're very excited to welcome Holly Whitaker who is a lot of things. She is a sobriety coach and teacher, a writer, a speaker, podcast co-host and producer, yoga and meditation instructor, instructor, uh, frustrated by the lack of effective recovery options for women. She just decided to create her own and she's here tonight to talk about that and to talk about her book, Quit Like a Woman. Uh, She will be in conversation with Sandra Primo, I hope I said that correctly, Uh, who is an artist, a maker, and a writer, and the co-host of the Unruffled podcast, a weekly show that explores topics related to creativity and recovery. So without further ado, I hope they've come down the stairs. Please help me welcome Holly and Sandra to Book People. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Wow. (laughs) Holly, look at all these people. I'm so nervous, too. Um, (laughs) We're both nervous. We're both nervous, so. um, We are. Yeah. Hi. Oh, we have friends here. Oh, hi. We're good. We're all good. Okay. Well, I have notes, people. (laughs) Um... So, Holly, 
Do you want me to do the reading first? Yes. I was okay. just going to say, why don't you, Holly's okay. going to start off by reading a section from her book. This is from the chapter called Hell is Other People. <laughs> All right. When I was a little over a year sober, some of my closer friendships had shape-shifted. One in particular became distant and tense. And to, try, and to try to mend it, my friend M invited me to her home for brunch, where everyone was at least a few drinks in by the time I arrived. This in itself is sketchy. I'm not sure what goes through your mind when you decide to invite your sober friend over to a midday drinking party in order to make things good with them, but whatever. You get used to a world that drinks, and you eventually notice it less, and then at some point, not really at all. And you also stop hanging out with people like this, or people you don't really like in general. Because these were wine people, everyone there was really into the wine and talking about it constantly. I did that thing I used to do in early sobriety when I couldn't figure out if I was supposed to be cool or enthusiastic or indifferent or maybe repulsed when somebody talked about the life-giving magic of booze. When someone remarked that the cab was really tannic, I nodded in the same way I might nod in agreement if someone had said it was hot outside. Yes, I agree. At some point, M's aunt, who I'd known for years and drunk many a glass of Central Coast shards with, looked at me as if noticing I was there for the first time. She stared for a minute and cocked her head to the side, like my cat does when she's trying to decide if she should eat me. Holly, she said, moving toward me slowly, deliberately, holding the kind of eye contact someone might if they were about to flick a tarantula off your shoulder. Holly, have you seen this wine? Which is when she pulled an open bottle of wine out of thin air, pushed it to my nose, and said, here, smell it. And then, you can still smell it, can't you? The worst part was, I fucking smelled it. And then appreciated the minimalist art on the label, as she instructed. I, agree, I agreed it was indeed a fine bottle of wine, and that she had made a great investment. That was five years ago, and I still remember it like it was yesterday, because you don't forget when, in perhaps the loneliest, most confusing and broken time in your life, someone not only doesn't ask you how that whole saving your life thing is going, but also shoves the drug that almost killed you into your face and asks you to smell it, or what it feels like to find out you weren't invited to someone you thought was one of your closest friend's bridal shower from Instagram, where they are posing in front of a winery in Napa with eight or nine other people, and you know they don't like Todd, and fucking Todd is there. <laughs> You don't forget seeing your social life move forward without you and your friends cutting you out of it, either because you don't want to go to events centered on drinking anymore because they don't know what to say to you or maybe they don't want to have to think about their own drinking. You don't forget what it feels like when someone asks you if you are still not drinking instead of asking if you need help, if you need support, if you need a hug. You don't forget how your heart hurts when your best friend tells you he wants you to come to Italy only if you're drinking, or what happens to your soul when someone you care about or madly in love with tells you they don't want a partner who can't drink at their wedding. You don't forget any of these things and how they made you feel, and not because you're some bitter human with a list of resentments, but because these things shape you into who you become and how you treat other people and how you let people treat you. Not long after that brunch at M's, on a megabus traveling from San Francisco to Los Angeles, a group, a group text circulated, a who's in for the next girls weekend among our circle of friends. There was a moment where I considered hanging out with M again, and then there was clarity. I don't like being around this person anymore. Somewhere on the 101, it dawned on me that I no longer had to hang out with people I really didn't like, even if I'd been in their wedding, had known them for years, had loved them, still loved them. So instead of replying, I deleted the thread and her number without offering any explanation. In this moment, I became a woman creating room for the things that mattered, a human telling the truth, a 35-year-old, a person in recovery with a wine bottle pushed to her nose who walks away. The thing about sobriety is that once you stop and face the three-headed monster that is your terrible relationship with alcohol, you can't help but look at all the other things you've been running from or that you've been forcing. When I realized I didn't have to drink anymore, that I could be this version of myself I'd never been before, I also realized I no longer had to put up with people who made me feel less than or react to people who provoked me. I didn't have to be the mean one or the intolerant one or the nice one or the one who settles or the one who no one respects. I didn't have to hang around with people I couldn't be myself with, or people who didn't like me, or people I didn't like, or people who cratered parts of me. I didn't have to compete for love, or earn love, or manipulate for love. If sobriety taught me anything, 
It was that I could be anything or anyone as long as I was myself. John O'Donohue in his essay, The Question Holds the Lantern, writes, when your soul awakens, you begin to truly inherit your life. You leave the kingdom of fake surfaces, repetitive talk, and weary roles, and slip deeper into the true adventure of who you are and who you were called to become. Sobriety for me was exactly as he wrote. I truly inherited my life. I slipped deeper into the adventure of who I felt called to become, and the tired roles I had played forever became obsolete as I moved forward into a world where I was finally naming the terms of who I would be and who I wouldn't be, which is exactly where relationships come in. Because here's the thing, people are going to be dicks about you not drinking. True. <laughs> You'll lose some, potentially all, of your friendships. People will say awkward and awful things about your choice to not drink. Being around your family will make you regress back into your most maniacal, infantile self, no matter how much work you do on yourself. Friends and strangers alike will assume you owe them an explanation for why you stopped imbibing or try to pressure you into drinking. And not only does no one in your life show up with a casserole, no one even really talks to you about it. I share this with you not to scare you off of sobriety, really it's great, but because I wish I had known about the fantastic and terrible other people things I would encounter in response to my choice to stop drinking before they happened. So at least I could know what I do now that all these other people things are not there as some huge middle finger to punish us for choosing to stop consuming ethanol. They are there to burn away everything we no longer need in order to grow us into the humans we were always meant to become. You signal to the universe that you are ready to grow up, that you are ready to do the work by choosing sobriety, and the universe responds, oh yeah, let's see if you're being serious. There are some folks I'd like you to meet. <laughs> The work of sobriety is achieved through all the things we've talked about, through meditating or changing your beliefs or making it through your first wedding sober. But the most vital work, the core of this path, is the work you do with other people. Reclaiming your whole self doesn't only happen on your meditation pillow in a hot yoga class or during Super Soul Sunday. It happens in the real world, among real people, in every single encounter you have. How you show up with other people is how you show up for yourself. And if you want to show up for yourself in a way you never have before, if you want liberation and transcendence and to own yourself fully, you have to engage with people in ways you never have before. So good. Oh my god. So good. Thank you. Um, Okay, so to get us started, um, why don't you tell us, in a nutshell, um, what Quit Like a Woman is about? What inspired you to write this book? I mean, the question that I'm supposed to say that I've rehearsed is that the way that women, uh, what we have to deal with, just in life in general, um, what it means to be a woman, especially today, um, how alcohol is wrapped up into that picture, um, how we encounter addiction, how we encounter recovery, these are things that are not talked about specifically. And that is something I specifically think needs to be talked about because it's different. How we experience all these things is different. The perfectionism that we have to, the perfectionism that shapes our lives, what we have to achieve and be, and like how alcohol becomes a crutch and also a symbol of that. Like there's, I mean, I could go on and on, but specifically it was just writing from this one viewpoint that I think is is a story that needs to be told from the beginning of of. <laughs> Of, of how we end up in our lives, right? And what we use to cope with the situation that we're in, and then what happens when we are trying to recover from that situation. But specifically, I wrote it because I'd been writing for a really long time, and I had all of these different threads, I had all these different things that I felt were scattered about, and like all of these points I wanted to make that I wanted to thread it together into like, how did this start? How did it become this impossible? Um, what was the breaking like? What was what was it like to encounter recovery? Like not just even as a woman, but as a woman that didn't want to use traditional systems. Um, and then also what happened in that recovery? I think it was just drawing drawing almost a thread from the beginning all the way through where I had ended up, which was also tied it into social justice and, and activism and, and kind of where I found myself in 2016. So I, it was for those reasons, but specifically to write about being a woman and encountering these things. Right. How hard was it to come up with a title? 
Oh, God. Um, I think it was, I mean, it was easy because I had a lot of people helping me with it, but um, I think that was really hard. I don't know. I mean, how do you capture it all? I was worried that if I called it quit like a woman, it would end up making it something that it wasn't. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the number one question I get from men is if they can read it, you know? Right. So. And you just want to say, I don't know, can, can you? <laughs> but it's true. I, was, I, I, don't just, I don't just write for women, you know? And, like, like, so many of the emails I get are from men. And I think that was a concern of mine. But also, when you think about what the world offer us, offers us, most of the stuff that we work with was created for men. And we don't ask if we're allowed to you know, read those books or watch those movies or go to those programs. And so I, I stick with, it's centered on a woman's experience. It's, it's, like, it's for women, but it's also for everybody, right? It just, it's centered on a different experience, but it's for everybody. Um, but yeah, that was the biggest hang up. And then it, there was, anyway, yes, yeah, it was hard. <laughs> Um, yeah, I can't imagine. It's a perfect title. Okay, good. Um, so, I, yes, I love how you strung everything together. So I've heard your story, I don't know, I've heard you tell it a, a handful of yeah. times. Um, but I, I think I didn't realize until I read the book how much my recovery looked so much like yours. In what way? Um... Well, I'll tell you, I, too, experienced relief, like, yeah. almost immediately. Yeah. I felt empowered. I liked to go out, like, almost immediately. Yeah. And didn't really speak to, you know, it's not a pissing contest about how bad the problem was. Yeah. I'll just say it was bad. Yeah. Um, but that was my experience. Yeah. And, um... I didn't do one day at a time. I, I had to take it off the table. Yeah. Like it just, nope, not yeah. an option. Yeah. Um, I even started a fucking meetup. I did. Me too. Yes. Oh, well, yeah. Okay, right. You know. Yeah, okay. I know. <laughs> yeah, I started a meetup and I met people. Some of them are probably here tonight. I met people yeah. and, and, and I um, had my last drink in Austin, which I, I don't too. know how that escaped me. Like, I don't yeah. know how I ev didn't ever hear you say that, that yeah. you had your last drink in Austin. Yeah. Um, so here's my question, and I've asked this before on my podcast to women that have had a similar experience. Um, do you think if you had not tasted some immediate relief, would you, do you think you would have had the tenacity to keep going? Because yeah. I work with a lot of women, I know you do too, and not every, it's, I, I feel lucky, and I don't think that's everyone's experience. Yeah, and I think that's why, that's so much behind why I started my program, yeah. was to be able to talk about it from this, and to do, not from a shame place of, like, you should feel this way at the beginning, right. but I think for me, I think when I come back to it, and I think about this a lot, actually, it was relief because of what the beliefs I went into it with. It was such a, it just, like, it was, it was such a revelation for me when I read, and I feel like I say this all the time, Alan Carr's book, but, like, I read this book that I didn't want to read, I didn't want to quit alcohol, I wanted to deal with a mental health condition, and that was propelling me, like, what I was doing, and not just in the sense of being addicted, but just in my life, what I was watching myself become was terrifying, and I read a book that I thought would not make me have to give up alcohol. I read a book, the only book I felt I could stomach at the time. And it ended up opening up my eyes to, like, because I had these, like, like how do you go on vacation without drinking alcohol? Like, I, I wanted to not be burning. I wanted it to not be such a mess, but I also did not want to give up my life as I knew it. And I was, like, going through the, like, the motions of my life and just watching, I'm never going to get to do that again. I'm never going to get to that to, to do that again. Because I think uh, enough of us in here understand that you can be fully in denial about having an addiction, but you can also have this creeping sensation that you have addiction. And, like, mm. and so... 
I would be like, I don't have a problem. And like, but why do I feel like I'm never going to get to do this again? Or like my time is up. And so I think as I'm going through that and I'm just kind of watching it come to an end and just how do you go on vacation and not drink? I couldn't wrap my head around that. Mm-mm. And how do you do any like of the things that we have centered around alcohol? And so the, for me, I went into it fully believing I was going to make alcohol work. I just was going to drink less. And then I read this book and it ended up painting a freedom I didn't even think was possible. I thought we had to drink. I thought we were supposed to all make it work and that like weirdos couldn't. And so when I had that revelation of like, oh my God, I don't have to do this. And oh my God, I can like go back to the place where, because I remembered life before alcohol. And I just thought like, well, now that I've tried it, now that we all have to do it, I can never go back. And so I I went in with this, this mindset and I think that it is, to me, it shaped my entire recovery. It propel, it did propel me. But I see people all the time coming in the other way, right? I, I work with a lot of people that come in and they and, and people that have for you know for years struggled or or people that have been sober for years and still like have that struggle. Um, and so I think it would have, yeah, I do. I don't I, if I hadn't had that presented to me that this is a benefit and this is an upgrade, which is why I am so like forceful about like this is this is a good like this can be the best thing this is like right you don't have to you don't have to do this um yeah I think I I think I would have I think if I like I talk about this in the book if I had gone about it and I was just trying not to drink without any upside on the other end of it it would have been a very different situation for me so yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah same same um yeah that reminds me um when you were saying about your what was it borderline 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 personality disorder Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I wanted my my doctor was like I think you're depressed I was like yes (laughs) thank you I don't have to give up alcohol yeah Yeah. somehow continuing to make it work it was until I could I ran out of options yeah 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 same um okay I want to talk about um, sober community and relationships. First, I have to give you and Laura McCowan props for your podcast home. I think I have to cry for I, I might get teary for a minute. And, and, and I'll tell you why. You ladies, like, built this community. I mean, you really built an actual community yeah. on Facebook. Yeah, there was a right. secret Facebook group yeah. when you guys started yeah. the podcast. And um, I jumped in there shortly after you started it. And I met some of... I mean... Yeah. I met some women Tammy. in there that are my friends for life. Yeah. And I... I have so much gratitude for you both for that. Thank you. Um, how have you, how have your relationships changed in sobriety, or how have you cultivated a sober community? I th- me and me and Laura, or just me? Just you. Okay, just um, you. I had no, to get that, that other part out of the way. Okay, cool. Um, my relationships have become more authentic. I think that they're, and they've just grown as I've grown. I kind of like went through this period of time where. Like, after the podcast and after writing and after starting the school, like, I think we do this and, like, where we think we, like, hit some level of knowing and have, like, having made it. And in 2017, like, two of my closest friendships that I'd made in sobriety, um, well, three of them, actually, um, it was 2017, it was, like, late 2017, early 2018, imploded. And so I think, like, in both ways, like... I have changed. I have grown up. I still am a shitty person and can be a shitty friend. Um, I am. I, I I crave and continue to build friendships that are drama free. And I think mm. that has been everything before it was built on drama yes. oh and my an God. energy of it. And. I know how to ask for what I want and what I need. I don't go for quantity. I go for. I, I go for what feels like home. Um, I go for people that I can have connection with and that I can, I have the connection with, like the ability to just like, 
the ability to share in my experience, which means people that are on some sort of path of healing, right? And have had like some sort of reckoning. Um, is that what you're like? You mm -hmm. at, okay? And did you ask? The, did you say community about something? Mm -hmm. How do have yeah. I created community? Mm -hmm. Oh, um, I think like personally, it's very different than what it looks like. I think like community and finding each other is so important. I like we've seen each other twice, right? In mm -hmm. real life, okay. Yeah. And I walked into the room tonight, and you're like sitting in the back of this room by yourself, and it's like I told you, it's like home. And there is this like, and we're not like we're not talking on the phone all the time. We're not like hanging out all the time. We know each other. We know each other's story. We've seen each other. We've supported each other from afar for about five years, I right. guess. Um, and that, to me, is community. Like, that right. is, like, I can walk in and just be like, oh, I'm so glad to see you. Like, this makes my night. And, like, it's community is, like, seeing Kelly and Casey, like, who I've seen three times in real life, you know? But, like, it's just, like, this... I think that there's also a specialness to recovery in that like we kind of just immediately have this like sense of community with people we meet along the way and so I develop it not in like I'm not like hanging out you know in a yurt with like my sisters you know like I <laughs> am, like it, it's not like community like it's just right. like this like sense of community that I have all over the world now, mm -hmm, um, right? And and locally, but it's not like always just because we hang out all the time or we're doing rituals together or something. Like it's just there's a a shared knowing and a shared. I was going like, to say that yeah. a shared knowing. It's like we have the same baseline. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, baseline. Mm -hmm. That was what I was looking for. Yeah, right. Um. Okay, let's. So your book, part memoir, part critique of the drinking culture, part roadmap um, to cutting out alcohol, which I loved that you had all both all three of those elements. Um, can you just talk about some like key things you did to quit drinking, and what you do to maintain your sobriety? Um, maybe touch on some of the key points, the framework of, of Tempest and what that's about. Yeah, I think the key things that I did was I was really scrappy about it. And I think that, like, I'm a perfectionist, and I think everything, I think I had consistently been, I'm staring at the self-improvement sign as I say this, I had consistently been in that section of a bookshop since my 20s. And so... <laughs> It wasn't like I didn't know I needed to improve myself. It was just I kept on like coming up with really um, painful plans to do it and putting and I had this all or nothing thinking about like how I had to do it. And so I was like, I'm going to do a 40 day Bikram yoga challenge or, you know, like I'm going to do this cleanse and a Bikram yoga challenge and I'm going to get a budget in place, you know, and like I would think like these things would like fix my fucking life and they never did. They made me more miserable because they were, I would start all of it like on a Monday hungover and then like on Wednesday I was like, you know, I'd blown my monthly budget in three days and I, you know, I mean, it's just like there was, I would just come up with this idea that was sold to me of like perfectionism, which I think is such an important thing to talk about too, especially in like, like sobriety influencer culture of like what it's supposed to look like. It should be a fucking mess. And like, that is it. It was just, this is a mess. And like, I'm going to wade through it. I'm going to like hack my way through it any way I can. And I'm going to keep on going. And so I think that one of the core elements of it was, was doing anything I could. It was like meditating for three minutes. It was like talking to the person. It was, it was just like going forward and not stopping because I didn't X every box on my checklist for the day. And so that's a really important part to me. And it also is what keeps me sober because I can't do perfect. I had tried to. It made me really sick. It's setting yourself up for failure. It is. And then that makes right. you want to drink mm -hmm. because you feel like crap. And so that piece of it, a meditation practice was so like sincerely important. And then also knowledge was really important, like understanding and changing my beliefs around alcohol, like really changing my beliefs, really being critical and self-aware of the way it showed up in my life and just being able to say, I don't like this. I don't want this. And, and the other piece of it was like, I write about this in the book, never question the decision. It was just removing the thing and, and not trying, like stopping trying to make something that had never felt good work. Um, 
And so I mean, there was there was like there was a lot I could talk for hours and hours. But the key to it was allowing myself also to go on my own, right? Like we're gonna all I think like at the beginning of a lot of our metamorphosis, no matter what it is, we're gonna be in relationships or jobs or scenes or communities or what we're going to be in situations that are really tied to keeping us the same and that is so terrifying to break out of the social packs that we have or the like I mean all of it for me was just going at it and and allowing things to fall away as I moved through it and so and allowing you know like judgments to exist allowing like for the first time not trying to make everyone else feel okay with my decision and bring everyone along Long and get feedback. It was just, and doing it with people, it was lonely. And mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was not supported. It wasn't like you go and like, it was just, I mean, I felt like an outsider constantly everywhere. And, um, but also that was special because it was, this was my thing. Like I got to, I was doing a thing and it was my thing. Um, so I think, I, I mean, the core of Tempest is to be holistic about it, to look at what's going on in here, what's going on like on the inside, what's going on physically, um, like taking into account nutrition or taking into account sleep or um, community, and then also environment. Um, and I did things in all of those areas. It's, you know, the, the base of it is basically making sure that you're not just doing one thing, but that you're also like moving forward and supporting all the areas of your life. All of it counts. Like every single thing that we do and encounter, like is recovery. Um, what was the second part of the question? Or did you, I get you, it? You, okay, good. You said it, yeah. yeah. And can we just acknowledge how great waking up without a hangover is? It's like the best thing in the world. <laughs> never gets old. It never gets old. Never gets old. No. <laughs> it just doesn't. It's, I think it's one of those things too. And I like, and not only that, I was at, I was talking with my, with uh, Robin Canner who did uh, an event with me in Washington DC. And she was talking about how like before she got sober, somebody was saying she had ran into a woman who was talking about what she does for fun on like a Saturday is go to goes to the market and gets fresh fruit. And the woman was just like, I get fresh fruit. And that was a thing. And it was because it was so small to rob. Like, it was just like, how does that make you happy? Like, you know, like, how it does that one so thing? Does, yeah. But then when she got sober, she was like, I, like, I get it. Right. This, like, small you, thing mm -hmm. of, like, waking up. So for me, it was, like, waking up not hungover and having a cup of coffee mm -hmm. and, like, having it not be burning down or waking up to the crime scene. It was just, yeah. Right. Right. Just a regular coffee. Not yeah. one full of regret. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not hangover coffee, just regular coffee. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So it's one thing to, you know, make this choice for yourself, but it's another thing entirely to like create a program for others, convince people to come on board in this like, you know, collective defiance of this substance that's clearly killing people and doing it loudly and apologetically. Um, how did you, I mean, how did you get here? How, what motivated you to make it like more than just a personal journey? Um, I think um, rage. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, um, is being extremely angry and feeling like I had this like I when my friend Jeff and I when we did go to Italy even though I didn't drink we went out one night and I was just like I think alcohol is terrible and I think people shouldn't drink and he was just like I would keep that shit to yourself and like <laughs> <laughs> um, can you grab Kleenex I'm sorry okay um yeah um I think <laughs> I think it was um um I think it, it was just like seeing so many, I worked in healthcare I was smarter than my doctors about addiction that was infuriating um my mom had cancer and everyone was like Holly how's your mom and which is an important question but like 
it was all like, she's fine. And I spent 60 of the first 360 days of my recovery traveling to take care of my sister in her pregnancy and my mom in her breast cancer. And no one asked me how I was. And I... And it was just like, it was reading and, and finding these hidden treasures of what was working in addiction recovery and realizing it was just so buried from the mainstream. It was working in healthcare and going to conferences and having no one mention addiction because the opioid you know, epidemic hadn't happened yet. And it was watching people that knew that alcohol was a deadly drug that killed lots of people shamed into not being able to talk about it. I watched somebody on the Dr. Oz show who was a smoker and she gets up and she's like, if you haven't started smoking, don't start. And if you are smoking, quit. And I was like, what would happen if I got up on the Dr. Oz show and said that about alcohol? Like, right. you know, like it would never go over. And so it was just like all of these things converging. And I, I think like it was also not like, you know, I'm going to do like, I, you know, I, I have no idea how I got here. Um, but like, <laughs> I, I think it was just following the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, and, and just like, I don't know, just knowing that like something had to be done and, um, kind of feeling unfortunately, like it was, you know, potentially on me to do some part of that. And so, um, I couldn't help myself. Yeah. You couldn't not. <laughs> well, we're just glad that you did. Um, let's talk a little bit. So I have a podcast with a, uh, my friend Tammy Solace, and we talk about the intersection of creativity and recovery. So that's kind of my jam. And um, But you were an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> And now you're a writer. Yeah. Um, did you, how did, how did getting sober help you kind of tap into your bubbling creativity? Yeah, whenever anybody asked me if I wrote before, I was like, I wrote very cruel and long emails to people <laughs> at work. <laughs> and everyone was like, wow, you really write a good email. Like, you really nailed it that time. Um, but it's true. People loved my emails um, or hated them, nailed depending it. on who you were. Um, yeah, I think that that was part of why I was sick. I think we are, mm. I think all of us are creative. I think right. we're trained to believe that we're not creative. And I think that we get pushed into the machine that, like, and we do whatever we can do, whatever's, whatever is available to us, depending on our privilege and depending on who we are and what opportunities we have. We pick these, you know, we, we basically like stay in the, in the, the line or in the, I can't like the, you know, the marking, the riverbed or whatever, whatever has been dug for us. We just kind of stay there. And I didn't even have like, I never can, I thought it was irresponsible to do something like, you know, like uh, creative writing, you know, as a degree mm. or what, I don't even know what the non-business degrees are or the non-lawyer right. degrees are. <laughs> um, I just knew I had to, I mean, I also just knew I had to make money. Like it was just, I'd watched my family struggle. I watched, you know, my, I wanted to be able to take care of my mom. Um, it just, I just didn't even imagine that there was a choice. And I hated what I did the second I started doing it. Like, I was constantly looking for a way out. And so when I stopped drinking, I think, like, I had started to touch into creativity at work because I started, I had to, like, I worked with our company, developed their own software, and I had to, I, I got a new department, and I had to create, like, help create our software and processes. And I, it started to allow me to tap into this belief that like I was potentially a creative person um, but that was when I got sober it just kind of like ha it had to pour out and then starting you know my blog or writing um, just even like creating my website all of the things that I did to like bring it into fruition it was just uh, that was like medicine and I realized I'm just I'm so much more creative than I'd ever given myself credit for and I think all of us like have that I think it's just we have we have this like stamp of idea of like what creativity is it looks like you can paint you know and I think it's it's just creating right right a meal a Beautiful thing, yeah, right, right. That's right. Like anything, yeah, and and all of that space that opens up when you quit yeah. drinking, yeah. 
mm-hmm. all that time. <laughs> <laughs> so much time. <laughs> right. Yeah. You just endless. L- yeah. L- <laughs> latch hook a rug. Whatever. What do you do? <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. So. So there's a chapter in your book called The Right Question, Is Alcohol Getting in the Way of My Life? Mm-hmm. Um, explain why this is the right question for people who are questioning their drinking and why you personally avoid labels like alcoholic. I think because like when you ask somebody if they're an alcoholic, first of all, it's subjective. I mean, I know people that call themselves alcoholics that were drinking like a glass or two wine a night, uh, you know, to the other end of the spectrum, right? Like, right. And so I think it's really subjective. It's like, it's, it's something that like there is again, like there's, there's scales and stuff, but like it's, it's incredibly hard to put your finger on it. And I think it also is just like looking for this one specific thing, like how much are you consuming? Do you exhibit these behaviors? Um, and enough people, like there's enough baggage strapped to it. I mean, like I think when you're on the other side of it, you could, you know, I was I was thrilled to be, I called myself an alcoholic for about the first year of it. And I was like, I'm a fucking alcoholic. I don't drink, you know, like it felt good um, when I had made peace with it. But I think the average time it takes from like actually developing an addiction to getting and seeking treatment uh, is 10 years. So 10 years that it takes for somebody to actually go and get help from a condition that they have had for 10. And this is like from the onset of addiction, not from when you started drinking. So it is a, I think it's a gatekeeping word. I think it keeps people from actually being able to just, uh, just assess like what's showing up in their lives. And like, there's, there was so much baggage strapped to it for me. Like I, I wrote, I, 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 I was relieved to have, uh, to have a diagnosable mental illness and not it be alcoholism. Um, and then I think, you know, and then I was grateful for it being alcohol addiction, but that word was just, there was so much with it, you know, like half my family's died from alcohol addiction and it was just always a thing I was trying not to become or always the thing that like happened to, you know, fucked up people or there was just so much uh, like in it. So I present it and I like everybody can do whatever they want. They can ask themselves whatever they want, just to be clear on that. But I prefer allowing the question to say like how is alcohol showing up in my life like what is it like does is this I think a lot of people will be like it's not that bad but when you really start to ask yourself like does it like does it make me feel terrible about myself do I like am I miserable that's right all the time right (laughs) right that too that was (laughs) that was the question I had finally come to yeah why am I miserable all the time yeah and it, that's the other thing too. It's, it's not just am I an alcoholic. It's how, like, how does it, what, is, like, what's going on there? And the questions are going to range. It like gets to start to look like us and what's actually happening to us. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, if only there was a line in the sand that you could cross over, so you would know. <laughs> You're like, oh, there I am. Except that, of course, the- I would just like. <laughs> Dust over it. Dust that line it's and okay. draw it out farther. <laughs> no, I didn't but, cross. I didn't cross that line. But there is, and the, and that's exactly it. There are like, I mean, there is the line of, and I like, I think of like the line of like, what does it mean when you go to bed with alcohol in your hand and then wake up and drink it? What does it mean when we, like what? What like there's the line of like, well, if it's like three in the morning, it's not like morning, right? And so. <laughs> And it's going to help me sleep. Mm -hmm. And then it just starts, you know, like the lines just keep on. You you do just look at them as you pass them. And then you're like, shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's see what time I'm checking the time because I'm okay we have a few more minutes to chit chat and then we're going to open it up to questions before we start the signing line um so early on in the book you say that people are shocked when you tell them that addiction was the best thing that ever happened to you why was addiction the best thing that ever happened to you because 
if I didn't have something, I mean, I'm hard headed. I don't know. I think like I needed to have something break to break all the other things. And so like to break the job that I hated and the profession that I hated, to break the idea that I had to keep my my rent control department in San Francisco because I could never get a better, like there was just so much stuff that I was holding on to. And I write to like, we just settle for the boxes that we're in and we don't ask. We're just, we're just hopeful that things just stay the same and we don't, you know, hit a catastrophe. And so we think stasis is, is safety and it's not, right? It just keeps us stuck. And for me, it was, I couldn't, not like it was painful and I couldn't ignore it. And if it was potentially a, a different addiction, if it was just workaholism, let's say that, I would have made it work forever and I would have never looked under the surface mm -hmm. of things. Um, but I think everyone, I think that we're lucky when we break. I think that we're lucky when it, we can't keep it together anymore. And when we actually have to look at all of the things and go down deep and start to like actually like living our lives instead of just surviving our lives. And it was the forcing function for me to stop, it didn't make my life perfect, you know, like, and it never will. It's, it's just, it's, it just made me understand there is no perfect, that we're all miserable. No, that like, it just, <laughs> it just gave me the, it gave me the ability to actually like show up here, you know, like instead of just waiting for it to be over. Right, right. Or never questioning what in your life is so intolerable that you're just tolerating. Yeah. 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 And there's this to um, Pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber, who I love. She said on an On Being podcast once that, um, she's also sober, by the way, if you don't know who she is, um, she said, if, yeah, if you don't have any demons, her word, but if you don't have any demons, I really don't want to have coffee with you. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So Same. maybe it makes this a little more interesting as well. <laughs> yeah, I think it, I, it's, you know, I love Glennon Doyle, or is it Doyle? Yeah, Glennon Doyle's work. Like, just, I think that people that struggle with addiction are very sensitive. And I think that we are so attuned to the world and that it, it, and that that's an important thing. Right. Yeah. 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 We have our emotions for a reason and we yeah. get to experience them. Yeah. And and just also like that we're sensitive, like what 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 is it that makes us like have to cope with our life in this way, right? Like and I think what is it that maybe other people don't feel that pushes us to these things? And I think, like, I always wondered what was so messed up about me, um, why I felt things more, or why I had to numb them more. And it was just, I think, that I felt, I actually felt the world. I actually felt it all. And that's a very beautiful thing when you know how to manage it and when you have the tools to manage it and the understanding. But, um, yeah. Yeah. That's a good answer. And it takes time. It does. It takes a lot of time for the rest of my life. It's mm -hmm. <laughs> a lifelong assignment. Yeah. Um, okay. You know what? Let's go ahead and open it up to the audience. Does anyone have any questions for Holly uh, over there on the floor? Hi. My name's Abigail. Um, I'm so excited you're here tonight. Um, so Thank you. my question is, So exciting to come here and inbox in some sort of uh, email thing. Um, and I'm just so curious, uh, as my journey this past year in the startup space, I've seen just the most extreme amounts of drinking, and there's beer on every floor of the workshare space. And I just love to know what was your experience with investors um, you know, raising money for this uh, your initiative, and how often were you met with? Very good question. Um, I think my experience of this, I mean, how do I want to answer that? Um, or maybe people were enlightened. 
I think the thing that was harder was like I walk in and I say, hey, I'm recovering from addiction and give me your money. Um, <laughs> to start a recovery company. Um, <laughs> I... That was, I, I think that, um, you know what, like, I, I have been through worse, and um, that is kind of the gift of a lot of, of what we go through when we make a really hard decision, and then we do things to support it. This, I was in an interview with a woman, and she was talking about how learning Spanish taught her perseverance. She's like a CEO of a company. And I was like, yeah, like getting sober taught me that. Like, it, it is like such a gift to have gone through something. I don't mean to tie it all back to sobriety, but it is tied back to that. Like, it prepared me for anything. Um, I ended up finding investors that were incredibly aligned with what I was building. Um, a lot of my investors are like, like the they were the ones I had the conversations. Like uh, Dave Morin from Slow, um, like sits on the board at Esalen. Like didn't drink is a huge uh, advocate of of uh, behavioral health and and mental health. Um, uh, research and community. Um, I, I found people that were like, "That's I understand what you're doing. I understand its need." Um, the other piece of it too is I do navigate. Like I do go to a lot of like events that are investor events, and everyone's drinking. And then they ask me what I do, and I was like, "I help people stop drinking." And so that's um, like that's typically where it gets uncomfortable because then they're like, then they start telling you why they drink um, <laughs> right. and how, how interesting what, you, what you're doing sounds and then they excuse themselves very quickly. <laughs> so, well, yeah. Congratulations because we're in fundraising right now and it's not easy and when I saw the number of what you guys raised I was just like that is just incredible for this entire movement community yeah. kind of waking up to yeah. alcohol. So. Perseverance. Yeah. Thank you. Who else? Uh, there's a gentleman over there. Um, I, uh, I, I think earlier you were mentioning you read a book when you were saying that you wanted to think that drinking was like more of a mental, mental illness thing and you wanted to read a book to kind of help fix that. I didn't catch the name of that book. Uh, it's Alan Carr and it's specific. It's called The Easy Way to Control Alcohol. He's written, he's deceased now, but he wrote a number of books on, on quitting drinking and that one was the one I read. And I still highly recommend it. It's great. The easy way to control alcohol. You can pick it up before you leave. It's in the self-improvement section? Okay. (laughs) Good. Awesome. (laughs) Yes. I've got a question, and I've been trying to figure out how to say it the right way. Most of us are probably either sober or comfortable bringing sobriety into our lives. But so many of our friends and family, now that I have these new lens that I look and see my life through, I notice people I love really struggle with it, and specifically women in my tribe. Yeah. But I'm not going to assert my opinion when they're not asking me for it. Yeah. But how do you, from a really loving and genuine place, be like, hey, I think we, like, need to talk about this. Yeah. Like, what you're going through without giving your own opinion. You know what I mean? Like, stepping across that line. Yeah. What's the best way to start that conversation with people? Um... I think that there's two pieces to this. We don't, like, the thing, the way I always look at this is I don't know anyone else's path. I don't know what they're supposed to be going through. I don't know how long it's supposed to take them. I don't know, I don't know anything about what their life has to look like. And I have to really work on my judgment with it and really get comfortable with letting, like, letting them be where they are in it. I, the reason that I speak so much and that I started speaking about it. It wasn't to sit and change my family's behavior or my friend's behavior. Um, it was like my side hustle. It was my thing that I was doing like to like tell somebody the shit's fucked up. And like 
that started to, to me, it was putting my story out into the world. The first place I ever published um, my act, what was actually going on with me was in like March of 2000, no, it was February of 2014. And I had written an account of my like bulimia and alcohol and pot addiction and I posted it on Facebook and LinkedIn. And like, so it was, was a lot. Um, yeah. um, Your LinkedIn, that's still kind of cracks me up. Oh, <laughs> I didn't. Okay, so I, I sent it around to some friends and I was like, put this out into the world. And they, like, who were LinkedIn. outside of my circle and then they tagged me on it in LinkedIn. And I was like, okay, cool. And um, so then I posted it because I was like, I'm going to do it. Um, but I think there was, so anyway, to come back to this, it's telling like your truth, standing in your truth. And over time, the people that want to talk to you and like figure it out, they're going to come to you. They like one of the things that I was most moved by Andre, my friend's father, the, was the man that had been in, in AA for about 20 something years. He knew forever, but he was never coming up to me and saying, Hey Holly, but he was there ready to take my call, you know, when I had questions. And so I think you can always, I think like if things are really going off the rails, I think that, um, my friend, um, Jane Mackey has a company called We the Village, which is dedicated to friends like the it's it's like resources for how to have these kind of conversations for friends and family. Um, but I think it's also if things are really going off the rails, there's definitely ways to approach people always with compassion and just like I'm here. I, if you ever need anything, I'm here. That's it. Um, you can call me anytime of night. You know that kind of thing. But um, I don't know. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah. Well, and I was gonna say too. Eventually, it's you start attracting. You know, you don't have to be, like, living hashtag best life, you know, either. But but you do start attracting people. At least they will start asking you questions eventually. Yes. Um, Always, yeah. Yeah. Especially if you just stay open. Yeah. 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 But that there is that important piece of, like, deconstructing the stuff within us that, like, makes it, like, that's been one of the hardest parts of this is just believing I know how anybody around me should be living, especially doing this work, because people can smell that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, right. <laughs> when yeah. you start getting prescriptive with your friends, yeah. they're like, yeah. later. Yeah. 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 It mm-hmm. took my sister and I, like, a good, like, three years to talk about alcohol. Um, and, and she didn't have a drinking problem. It was just, it took us three years to even talk about it, you know? So. Yeah. 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 Same. Um, who else? Anyone? Oh, yes. So when you come up, come from like this fucked up perspective for so long and then Because it's your experience, and it's going to change. I mean, I look back at some of my old stuff, and it's bad. Um, <laughs> but but you like we don't wait to be perfect to talk and to share our experience. We just start talking, and we grow into it, and we have like enough grace to know, like uh, enough compassion for who we were a few months ago, or a few weeks ago, or a few minutes ago. But we just start. Yeah. Okay, I can do one more question. I'm told. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a lot of what keeps me coming back to it. Yeah. So, like, where, like, it used to be you were talking about the level of like men versus women that were addicted. Yeah. Like, what, what is causing this like archetype of like the sexy seductress or like cute girl, like the wine on pajamas, or like, what is that? Patriarchy. No, I think it is, I mean, that's an image that we've been sold. And it's been that, like, that romanticism, that image of it is the same as, as, you know, a size whatever, 24, it's size zero gene, or like, like the beauty standards that we have, the, um, the success standards that we have, having it all, uh, us with a cocktail, um, all of these things have been sold to us and we can blow those images. That is no, that used to be my image. 
and that's no longer my image. When I see that, I see something very different now. When I see somebody holding a glass of wine in an ad, it is a very different picture. When I see somebody at a restaurant ordering a bottle of wine, it is a very different picture. And so we have to work hard to deconstruct those images and understand they have been sold to us so that we're programmed to uphold them and that ideal. But it just comes with looking other places. And like once you start to pull the thread on it, you can't unsee, you can't unlearn, you can't unknow, but you do have to remain vigilant about it because there's so much out there that's going to continue to try and drive that image. Um, there's very little that's like trying to counter it, at least now, you know. Well, except that we're starting a revolution. Well, and it's changed so much. I was on a call the other day with, um, with somebody who, um, she got sober with Annie's book. She's an investor, and she's, um, she's incredible. We were, we were talking on the phone, and she told me um, that I got into, like, she thought I'd started it like a year or two ago, and she's like, you got into this at the right time. People are really talking about sobriety now. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Right in the wave. <laughs> so yeah, things have changed a lot in 10 years, seven years, eight years, whatever. It is. It's really fantastic. It is so different, the conversations that we're having now. And and it's only going to continue to change. So that's really exciting. Right. Normalizing non-drinking culture. Can you imagine? I know. What well, that fuck? will be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it is. It's so... In New York, it's so normalized because, like, Sandsbar here in Austin, it's normalized. Like, there is, like, a normalized culture around this, which is incredible. So, and it's just going to keep on getting better. Yep, it is. Yeah. It is. Um, okay, well, we are going to line up book people. I think they're going to organize the book signing line. But um, real quick... Um, was this recorded waiting. for a podcast? So this is going to be on your podcast, right? Right. So we've recorded this for the Unruffled podcast. Yes. Um, we haven't decided if we're leaving the Q&A in or not. So if you asked a question, don't get nervous because we may cut the Q&A. But yeah, the Unruffled podcast, we're on all platforms. Um, if you want to listen to the playback, I don't know when it will air, but okay. soon-ish, I'm sure. Um, but first, if you please enjoy a mocktail from Chris and the Sandspar crew. Woo! Right? This is amazing. Um, thank you, book Will you people. raise your hands? Yeah. Sandspar? Yeah, where are they? Where's Sandspar? Over here. There they are. Um, thank you, book people, for hosting this event. Thank you, and Sandra. Thank please, you all for showing up. Please, everybody, help me thank Holly one more time <laughs> for coming to Austin and writing this fucking important book. Thank you for having me. This is rad. So thank you. I'm always afraid no one's going to come. So thank you. <laughs> Where do I sign the books? Okay. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening.